You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. Every year, between 5 and 6 million people are victims of identity theft. Hopefully none of you here have, have fallen victim to that. But identity theft is simply when someone steals your personal information and then uses it without permission. Uh, most of the time, thieves are after money. They're, they're taking out car loans, racking up credit card debt, that sort of thing. But that's not what Wendy Brown was after. Wendy had a troubled life. She had two children uh, before she finished high school. She had a history of mental health issues. And she eventually married in her 20s, but that didn't, get, that didn't make things better. In fact, things got so bad in her home, sadly, that she had to send her two children to live with her parents in Nevada just to give the kids more stability so she could work through her challenges. And she was in her early 30s at this time. And as I said, she had a history of mental health issues. And yet having to send her kids out of the home wasn't rock bottom for her. It got worse. In fact, she was so desperate to fill a high school, fulfill a high school dream of making the cheer squad that she planned to steal her daughter's identity and try out for the team as her daughter. She was 33 at the time. My first question was, how does a 33-year-old blend in with high schoolers? Well, apparently, she looked younger than she was. Uh, she bought clothes that the high school girls were wearing. She even learned to talk like a teenager because apparently there's a dialect there. And she enrolled at a local high school claiming to be her own daughter who had just moved from Nevada. And the guidance counselor said something seemed a little off. She seemed a little old for her age, but all the mannerisms and all the appearance was uh, fitting with the behavior of a, of a high school uh, junior or senior. Her scheme worked. She was accepted and enrolled in high school. She even made the cheer squad. And she lasted a week into school before she was caught and charged with felony identity theft. What a sad situation, right? A mother stooping to steal her own own child's identity to live out a high school dream. A reporter later sat down with her and asked her how she felt about this. And as expected, she said she had some conflicted emotions. Though she loved being part of the team, she felt burdened with guilt. Wendy said, quote, I was living two different lives, two different people. And there are many, many Christians who feel the same way. They're caught living two different lives instead of living consistently with who they are now in Christ. That means they're robbing themselves of their own identity in the Lord Jesus, acting sort of saved in some ways and sort of like the world in other ways. Do you struggle to live up to your new identity in Christ? Though you've trusted Christ as Savior, you don't feel changed, you don't feel different, you don't feel like a new creation. Instead, what you do feel is the struggle with sin. You do feel the pull back to the way that you used to live. You don't see yourself any differently now. Well, the good news is that the scriptures, the Bible teaches us triumphantly that we are new people in Christ. That is truth. Our lives are completely and irreversibly changed at salvation. We have received a new identity. 
And the rest of the Christian life is really the process of simply living out this new identity. And yes, we fail frequently. But how, how do we live out our new identity? Well, first, we renew our minds. We study the scriptures. We learn who we really are. And then we ask God for grace to live consistently with who we are, to live out the changes that have taken place in our lives. You see, who we are in Christ, our identity as related to Jesus, changes everything about us. Our choices, our values, our thoughts even, our actions, even the things that we love, the things that we enjoy, our relationship to Jesus has fundamentally transformed all of those areas. Everything we do now is related back to our relationship to Christ. As theologian David Garner writes, being in Christ means that we are delivered by, determined by, and defined by the success of Christ and the power of his resurrection. For this reason, we must think and speak of ourselves as according to our life in Christ. To put it another way, a friend of mine said this, to grow spiritually, we must first start with who we are in Christ, our identity. Before we know what to do, we must know who we are. The key to unlocking the chains of sin is to see our identity in Jesus. And then that identity will spill over into the practical setting. You see, all of, all of these things that I've said this morning are leading to this. Who we are changes how we live. Who you are and who you think yourself to be changes, who you, changes how you live. And that's where Colossians 1, 12 through 14 comes in. The passage here that we've been looking at teaches us about what God did, how God dramatically rescued us from, from sin at salvation. It shows us who we are before coming to faith in Christ. And in these three verses, we learn that there are really seven different ways, just in these verses, seven ways that our identity is changed at salvation. And last week, we looked at three, all from verse 12. Let me do a brief review here to get a running start, and then we'll look at verses 13 and 14 today. Believers, first, are qualified heirs. That means that God has named us as part of the will, if you want to call it that. We are in, inheritors. We are to receive an inheritance in heaven. And that means then that God is for you. If God puts you in his will, he's not taking you out. Does that mean that God is against you? Is God fighting you? No. Does God chasten those he loves? Absolutely. But God is always for you. What's more, we can access the riches of this inheritance now. We don't have to wait until eternity to get it. Because anything we need spiritually to grow and to live our Christian lives, God says, I'll give it to you. Do you need wisdom? Let him ask in faith. Do you need peace? My peace I give to you. Do you need grace? My grace is sufficient. This identity as qualified heirs also reminds us to invest in spiritual riches. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. It also changes the way we think about our physical possessions. Our stuff really doesn't matter. We can't keep it anyway. First, believers are qualified heirs. Second, believers are saints. We stand holy before God with an exalted position. Our record has been wiped clean. Our shame is taken away. We have a new purpose in life, and that is to bring glory to God by the way we live. We can be as holy as we want to be, and our holiness is not trying to gain favor with God. It's simply reflecting the glory of our God 
because we are made holy in him. Third, believers are people of the light. God brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That means then that we fellowship with God and there's a clarity to our relationship with God. We also fellowship with one another, other people who walk in the light. We also experience cleansing from sin and the clear conscience that we can have when we walk in truth. The Spirit of God shines light into our hearts to teach us truth. He has a ministry of illumination. Well, how else has our identity been completely changed? Today we'll see four more and we'll kind of wrap up this text before moving on to the next section of Colossians next week. Number four, believers are rescued from danger. Verse 13, he has, God has delivered us from the power of darkness. Every human being is born in darkness, not literal darkness. Uh, I guess if you're born at night, you are, but spiritual darkness. We come into this world under Satan's power and authority. And so one of the ways we can look at what Jesus did is that he came to earth on a rescue mission, infiltrating enemy lines, going behind in the dark to rescue us from danger. When I was four or five, somewhere in there, uh, my father and I were out in the woods behind our home, and I grew up in New Hampshire, so it was a lot, a lot more rural. Uh, the woods behind our home is, you know, eight feet long by seven feet wide, <laughs> and there's one tree back there. But the woods in my home growing up uh, was acres of woods. And so my dad and I were out walking around, tromping through the woods, and I stepped on a yellow, uh, yellow jacket's nest. Sometimes they burrow in the ground, and I didn't see it. I stepped on it, and immediately there was a cloud of bees. And he said, run. <laughs> and we went taking off. Obviously, I'm four or five. I can't run very fast. But he's running behind me, swatting bees off. I think they were into my sweatshirt. And, and, and it was a bad situation. Now, I was stung several times. But if, I hadn't, if he hadn't been there, I would have really been in trouble. I'm not allergic to bees, thankfully, because then it would have been life-threatening. But I would have been in a world of hurt, even more than I was. I even remember what I was wearing. It was one of those weird memories that's burned into your mind. I was wearing a Boston Celtics sweatsuit. I don't know why I can remember that. Now, I had several responses to that rescue. And I think all of my responses to that rescue are identical to how we respond to being rescued from spiritual danger. First, when we're rescued from spiritual danger, we stay completely away from that danger. Do you know what I didn't do the next day? I didn't go back to that same stretch of woods and said, I wonder if I can do that again. I'm actually not one of those guys that gets a rush from seeing how close they can be to danger. Call me a wimp. I don't care. I just have no interest in that. I'm not a daredevil except on my bike. When we're rescued from spiritual danger, there's no good reason to get close to that danger again. People who know the danger of sin don't dabble in it. They stay as far away from it as possible. Instead of thinking, how close can I get before I cross that line into sin? We should be thinking, how far away from sin can I be? There's a fictitious story about a king looking to hire a carriage driver in a bygone century that fits in here. The king had three applicants, and as he sat them down, he asked them, how close do you think you could get to the edge of a ravine if my daughter was in the carriage, the princess? The first applicant stood up and proudly declared that he could get within a yard of the edge. The second man, not, not willing to be undone and overshadowed, said, ha, I can get to a foot. The third one, with trembling hands and a quivering voice said, 
biblical king, I wouldn't get anywhere close to that edge. I'd stay as far away from it as possible. Which driver do you think got the job? (laughs) The one that said, I'll stay as far away from it as possible. So what's our attitude towards sin? What's your attitude towards sin? Get as close to it as you can or stay as far away from it as possible. Why do we dabble with the things that God rescued us from? If we're holy people rescued from danger, then why are we putting ourselves back in compromising situations? Now, all of us, James 1, says that we have sins that appeal to our flesh. We have custom temptations, you could say, because of our personalities, our interests, our desires. And, and, and I would encourage you, you need to know how your flesh is tempted. You need to know what weaknesses you have. Why? So that you cannot give yourself an opportunity to sin. You can set up guardrails that'll prevent you from falling into those temptations. Now, a guardrail will not prevent sin. Just like if you drive on the road and there's a guardrail there, if you drive fast enough and and swing into that guardrail quick enough, you can go through it. But the point is, that guardrail will keep you from danger. Rand Hummel, the director of the Wilds of New England, often says, make it hard to sin and easy to do right. Make it hard to sin and easy to do right. And in my experience at camp and and serving uh, on discipleship staff at a university, I've counseled many, many young men who come to me with help for sexual purity. In fact, statistics say that before the age of 18, about 85% of young men will, will view some sort of pornography. It's like eight out of 10. And so there are a lot of young men that need help with this. And so they, they've come to me, and in the counseling process, we talk about changing the heart, changing the desires of what, we do, of what we want, being satisfied in God rather than trying for a cheap imitation. But we also talk about making it hard to sin. That includes things like putting filters or accountability software on devices, like your phone or your computer, not being on the internet in private or late at night. Those are just opportunities that make it really easy to fall into a sin that you don't want to go into. Now, those things, an internet filter or, or not using you know, your computer after 9 o'clock at night or something, that, that's not going to prevent you from sinning. It's not going to make the temptation magically go away, but it's going to make it harder to sin. And so I, as I counsel these young men, I encourage them to change their thinking. How pure can you be rather than how close to sin can I be and still be okay? It's a fundamental, fundamentally different way to think. Stay completely away from the danger. The second response that I had was, I wasn't afraid anymore when I got back to the house after being stung. And so when we are rescued from danger, we can be released from the power of fear. When Christ is our Savior, what is there to be afraid of? Yeah, there may be something in life that hurts us. There's something in life that makes us uncomfortable. But if your eternity is secure and God says, I'll give you peace right now, then, then what are we afraid of? We're not in danger anymore. Knowing Christ frees us from the captivity, the grip of fear. The Bible says, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 
And that release from fear is part of the sanctification process. It's, it's part of growing in Christ's likeness. And it may take time. So if you're still struggling with it, don't be hard on yourself that you are, but look to Christ. Remember that you've been rescued from danger as you grow in your faith. Remember that God is with you. He is your shepherd walking beside you each step along the way. But third, we should be keenly aware of others in danger and seek to rescue them. Now, I am not afraid of bees anymore, which is good because I'm an adult, but I, I don't like them. I just, I get, I get nervous around them. I just, I don't like seeing them around. Uh, some people are impervious to them. I just, I'm uncomfortable by them, and it's probably because of this experience that I had. But I especially don't like it when bees hover around my children because I don't want my kids to get stung. I mean, that's happened several times, and it's like, whew, it's a big deal. If we understand the danger of sin and we understand that we've been rescued from eternal death and hell, then what are we doing to stop others from falling into hell? I recognize no one likes thinking about eternity in hell. No one likes thinking about damnation. But the danger of hell is a biblical motivation to go and reach people with the gospel. You say, wait a second, I didn't know that. The Apostle Paul used the judgment of God and the punishment of unbelievers as motivation to evangelism. 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. If you know that hell is real, then what are you doing to stop people from going there? Hell was so real to Paul that it drove him to call out danger to others. So I would ask you, who are you shouting danger to? Who are you standing between eternity and this person and saying, don't go there? You can be rescued from this. Or has the fact that you've been rescued and safe now made you forget that there are millions of people all around the world still in danger? It's a sobering reality to realize that there are thousands of people in our city, millions of people in our country, billions with a B of people in our world who don't know Jesus. And when they die, they don't have hope. And here we are, rescued from danger, and what are we doing to rescue them, to bring them the saving news of the gospel? Frankly, I, I hope and I pray that our church is so convinced in the reality of hell that we are motivated to bring people to faith in Christ. Obviously, we can't do it, but bring the gospel to people. How wonderful would it be if we got to heaven someday and there are people who we will meet there who say, I am here because of you and your church. And praise God for it. It's a sobering reality that if we've been rescued, we ought to go and bring the message of rescue to others. But not only are believers rescued from danger, they're also citizens of Christ's kingdom. This is, in all, this is also in verse 13. God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. When we are conveyed into Christ's kingdom, we receive a new citizenship. We belong to heaven now. Our passports, if you want to use that analogy, are stamped not with the United States of America, but with kingdom of heaven, kingdom of Christ. And the Bible actually, in, in many different places, teaches us how to live as citizens of heaven on this earth. 
Now, to illustrate that, many of you have traveled out of the country. Maybe some of you are out of the country recently. You've, you've been an American citizen living in another nation. No, Canada doesn't count. Okay? I'm talking about actually overseas. All right? uh, when you're living there in another country that you don't speak the language, your day-to-day life would have many similarities with being a citizen of heaven here on earth. How so? First, citizens recognize they are foreigners in this other country. My citizenship is in America. Some of you have dual citizenship, so you have two nations that you call home. But my citizenship is in America, so if I go and I live in India or Kenya or Brazil, I am a foreigner. This is the natural correlation to being a citizen. When you are away from home and beyond your borders, you're not at home. You're a foreigner. Since our true home is in heaven, we are foreigners here on earth. This world is not our home. The Bible calls us exiles, pilgrims, strangers, and aliens, not Martians, but but those that, that are wandering without a homeland. Why does the Bible use all these things? Well, the Bible is trying to communicate to us, secondly, that citizens don't fit into a foreign culture. You stick out like a sore thumb when you travel abroad. It isn't your country. It's not your culture. You don't know the customs. And it's, it's so important that Christians come to accept this little point, that we will not fit into this world's culture. Followers of Jesus will not fit in with the ungodly culture around us. Earth isn't our country and the world isn't our culture. And we ought to recognize that and be content with it because our citizenship is in such a better place. We don't want to be called friends of the world. James 4.4. James says, you adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know? That friendship with the world is enmity, it's, it's strife with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Many issues in our churches today stem from this basic misunderstanding. We are not called to fit into the world. We are not called to make the world like us. We are called to be in the world but not of it. Light cannot fit in with darkness How are we supposed to shine in the dark if we look just like the dark? Christian, you will be mocked. You will be mistreated. You will be harassed. You will be discriminated against. There are some of you here that are already seeing that. You have already experienced that. And that is not unusual. That is the blessed cost of following Jesus. Yes, blessed, I didn't misspeak. Because to to suffer for his name is a reward, Philippians 1 says. Settle this in your heart. Do not want to be a friend of the world. Don't wish for that. Because being a follower of Jesus is far greater. Be content not to fit in. Well, why don't we fit in? Because our loyalty is to Jesus. Citizens remain loyal to their real country. And from time to time, a celebrity one of those talking heads out there in our culture, will talk about how they hate America and they wish that they were in another nation. And my response is, can we do a GoFundMe to send you there? No citizen that loves his or her country will speak like that. If we love our Savior, who are we going to be loyal to? Our Savior. 
Paul picks up this idea later in Colossians 3. He says in verses 1 through 4, to seek things above. Don't set your affections on things of the earth. In other words, love your Savior and love heavenly things. Don't be too attached to this life. Don't love parts of the world that prevent you from being loyal to heaven. This is the definition of worldliness. Worldliness is setting your affections on things below. It's loving the things of this life. We've been saved from this life. Why would we love it? A worldly Christian has forgotten that they're a citizen of another country. An American who falls in love with Iran or China or Russia has betrayed their country. Sadly, many professing believers have betrayed their country too. These people are more concerned with their American rights than their spiritual rights. They love celebrity culture more than they love Christ and his church. They're far more in tune with politics, sports, or entertainment than they are with developing Christ's likeness. They devour the news, social media feeds, or stock market analysis, but barely touch their Bibles. They sacrifice faithful church attendance for the seasonal mountain activity. The best description of believers like that is worldly. They've set their affections on things below. Does this describe you? Does it describe your heart? That you're willing to come to church, you're willing to do just enough to kind of satisfy your conscience, but, but no, Jesus is certainly not first place. There's, there are many other things you'd rather do than be here. Who are you most loyal to? As a pastor, one of my greatest burdens is to constantly point our attention upward to Christ. And to look to Christ, what do we have to battle in our culture? You know, if we were in, in, in Islamic countries, we would have to battle the fear of physical safety and violence. In our culture right now, we don't have to battle that. We have to battle the attraction of the world and the allurement of riches and the comfortability of our culture. That's what we have to battle against. It's a subtle enemy. Because the world looks good. It looks fun. It looks satisfying. In fact, Hebrews 11 says that sin is pleasurable for a season. Only Jesus, though, can truly satisfy. Only Christ is worth your devotion. Citizens of heaven remain loyal to their country. And as they remain remain loyal to their country... They will love to fellowship with fellow citizens. If you're living in another country and you hear an American accent or an English accent, you're immediately drawn to them. You're like, ah, someone that actually speaks my language. My brain can take a a language break here for a few minutes. It delights you to talk in your language and, and to talk about home. People who move here from other countries, maybe this is described some of you, uh, have set up small communities who speak in your language together and understand your culture. They gather with people uh, separate and apart because they, they want to remember their homeland. And that's exactly what the church is. Because yes, we do have people from different 
nationalities here, different citizenships, but we are all citizens of heaven. And so when we gather together, we gather to speak the same language, to encourage one another with shared values, to pledge our allegiance to our king in worship. That's what we're doing. Our gathering with our church not only unites us, but it strengthens our resolve to live as citizens of heaven as we are challenged to walk worthy of king and country. But then lastly, citizens, under this point, lastly, citizens along to return home. If you're, if you're a foreigner, you, you want to go home someday. Philippians 2, 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the reason that heaven sounds boring to a lot of people is because we're far too comfortable with our lives here on earth. If you don't long for heaven, it's probably because you're too content with the things of this life. Your values are are actually here below rather than up there above. Citizens of heaven who realize that they're foreigners, who feel the brokenness of this world, who remain loyal to their king, who don't fit into this culture, are are going to long to return home. So if you have a desire for Christ to return and to go see him in glory, then you're doing something right. Because that's where our true destiny is. That's truly home. And as we go in our Christian lives, more and more we should be less content with the things around us that we are free from the grip of convenience in a culture, and instead, as we grow, we're setting our affections on things above. We have to keep moving. Verse 14, we see two things, that believers are, number six total, believers are redeemed, in whom, in the Son, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption means to buy something back or to set a slave free. And it's that last picture, setting a slave free, that the New Testament talks about. Because when we are born into this world, not only are we born into darkness, we are born into slavery. We are under the dominion of sin. But by his death on the cross, Jesus freed us from sin. He bought us back. Now we are not enslaved to sin. Our bondage is broken. Jesus broke sin's power at the cross. That is hope-filled, life-giving news. You can be free from every sin you struggle with. In this life, there will always be a battle, but the truth of Scripture says that if you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Sin does not have any power over you any longer. As the great hymn says, Jesus breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. And if you want to study this further, I would recommend to you Romans 6. If you're taking notes, jot down Romans 6. Paul connects our union with Jesus to freedom from sin. I've pulled just one verse for time's sake. Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Your bondage to sin was broken. And if we're no longer slaves to sin, that also means that you enjoy true freedom. You're liberated from sin. You're free. Galatians 5, 13 
says that we are indeed free, but now we are not free to do whatever we feel like doing. We are free from sin to serve one another, to live pleasing to God, to walk uprightly with him. Our freedom is not like our American freedom where we claim our rights and say, don't tread on me. Our freedom in Christ is the liberty to not sin and the ability to serve Christ. Our freedom in Christ is the liberty to not sin and the ability to serve Jesus and his church. That means then that freedom is not I am my own master now. We actually are under a new master. Jesus became our master because he purchased us with his own blood. And he is a gentle, gracious master. He's not exacting and harsh. He is loving and kind. And we belong to him. Sin doesn't define you anymore. Christ does. We present ourselves to Christ to serve him. And I know that I'm speaking to some today who are hopeless, who feel the, the weight and the guilt and the power of sin in your life and you're in bondage and you don't feel like you can ever come free of it. And the process of change begins with recognizing what Jesus has already done in the past. He has set you free. That sin that plagues you, that ensnares you, does not control you any longer. You are a new creation. Jesus broke the power of the anger that dominates you, the addiction that ensnares you, the fear that controls you. We could go on. Jesus broke the power. So why is it still so strong in my life? Because Galatians 5, 16 through 23 says, there's a battle between our flesh and the spirit. But as long as we give ourselves to the Spirit to present our bodies as living sacrifices and begin the process of changing the way we think, Romans 12, 1 and 2, by the renewing of our mind, Jesus gives us the grace to gain power over our sin struggles. That's how alcoholics become set free. That's how pornographers become clean. That's how those who have been so crippled by despair become joyful because Jesus sets them free. Finally, believers are forgiven. Verse 14 says the forgiveness of sins. That means your sins are wiped away. Your offenses are gone. You are released from your debt to God. You've received a pardon of a heavenly duration. Your sins are no longer held against you. October 2nd, 2006 was a nightmare day for two men, Matt Swatzel and Eric Fitzgerald. Because on that day, Matt was driving home after a 24-hour car shift as a firefighter when he fell asleep and crashed into another car, and it was a fatal car accident. In the other car was Eric's wife, June, who died, as I said, from the fatal car accident. And in his grief, Eric had a choice to make. He could be angry and bitter at Matt, hold that against him or he could forgive him and he chose to forgive and specifically he chose to forgive because he is a Christian as a pastor he had taught about forgiveness many times before but he said that I had to practice what I preached I had to forgive because that's who I am and this heartwarming story illustrates our identity has forgiven people in three ways. First, your relationship to God is restored. What's beautiful about this story between Pastor Eric and Matt is not that simply Eric chose to forgive Matt, 
But they did what was unthinkable. They ended up having a relationship with one another. Eric's forgiveness actually restored that broken relationship. They met for years. Reading the article, it seems that perhaps Matt was brought to faith in Christ through Pastor Eric's forgiveness. And when it comes to our lives spiritually, what, what was broken by the fall, the sin that, that, that alienated us from God, is now repaired in Christ. Jesus paid our debt in full, and he is the only way that someone can be forgiven of their sin. This is one of the saddest things in the world to me, is that there are millions of people looking for forgiveness of sin, and there's an answer that's clear, and it's actually easy for you. You repent, and you believe in someone else's work, and there are millions of people who say, no, I have to do something else. My friend, if you've never received forgiveness, it is by faith through Christ. And when God forgives you, he wipes away your sin. Your past sins don't define you any longer. There are testimonies of many of you here that that before coming to faith in Christ, you were fill in the blank of a, a type of sin. That's who you were. But now in Christ, you are clean. You are free. You are pardoned. You are forgiven. And there may be, there may be consequences from our choices, just like Eric and Matt, there were consequences from that accident. But God doesn't put us in a penalty box for a two-year period. He immediately pardons you and your fellowship with him is restored. Not only is your relationship to him restored, the weight of guilt and shame are gone. Can you imagine being this man, Matt? Can you imagine that after working as a firefighter, you made a, a, a simple mistake just a couple of miles from home and your life is changed because you accidentally killed someone? Can you imagine the guilt and the shame that he bore for years? Well, what helped him overcome these things? <laughs> it was actually Pastor Eric's forgiveness and friendship. The article that I read said he helped Matt raise himself from, quote, the abyss of guilt. When Matt got married and had his own children, Pastor Eric was there to encourage him and to bless him. For those who are forgiven a full pardon, not a partial, not a delayed, a full pardon is made. Romans 8.1 is one of the most triumphant verses in all scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None. It's gone. Many people say, I can't forgive myself. I can't forgive myself. I can't forgive myself. Maybe you've said the same thing. But this, this way of thinking is actually unbiblical. Because you, you don't need to grovel in guilt for years and years. There, there's no nebulous debt out there that you have to finally hurdle over and repay enough to, to feel better. You don't need a self-imposed penalty to do away with that because there's never enough that you can do. If you struggle with this thought of, I can't forgive myself, you need to remember gospel truth. When you confess your sin, God forgives you, period. And if the eternal God who knows all things has forgiven you and moved on, then my friend, you can too. Because when we are forgiven, our past doesn't define us. Our relationship to Christ does. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, preach gospel truth to your heart. Look up to Christ. He died for you. He made an end of all your sin. Look to him and remember who you are. You are forgiven because Jesus has paid 
your pardon. And then finally, forgive others since you've been forgiven. And this is a hard thing for a lot of people. It's, it's really nice and warm even and fuzzy to talk about Jesus has forgiven me. That's great. But this is really where the rubber meets the road. This is where it gets tough. Why did Pastor Eric choose forgiveness? He said in his own words, quote, you, you forgive as you've been forgiven. It wasn't an option. If you've been forgiven, then you need to extend that forgiveness. He's quoting, he's, he's, he's uh, summarizing scriptural truth here. Because the Bible teaches us over and over again that we, we forgive others not to feel better about ourselves, not to, to have some uh, therapeutic response in our own hearts. We forgive others because God forgave us. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Matthew 18 tells the story of a great king who pardoned a servant who owed him an unpayable debt. And that same servant went out and caught a fellow servant by the throat and said, pay what you owe. Here was a man that had been forgiven a debt he would never dream of repaying and yet demanding repayment from a fellow slave. And the moral of the story is that servant was ungrateful and didn't understand the true nature of forgiveness. And how many of us here today don't understand the true nature of forgiveness? That we're very content to say, God, you've forgiven me, thank you for that, but oh yeah, that, that, my fellow human being, I can't forgive them. They hurt me too much. I'm not downplaying the hurt, it's very real. Some of you have been wounded in ways that are too deep to even speak of. I'm not minimizing that. But but who are we to receive a forgiveness of eternal length and yet hold out on someone else next to us? Can you honestly say that you have forgiven everyone else? Is there a face or a name that comes to mind as we've been talking about forgiveness Because if there is, Jesus calls you to forgive. That is the scriptural responsibility. Yes, that other person's wronged you. Yes, it will be hard to forgive. But to forgive is who you are. You've been forgiven of a greater debt by God. So I would plead with you to extend that same forgiveness to others. And I've been there. It's hard. It takes time. Even after you make the initial decision to, to, to give that forgiveness, to grant it, to release that other person from debt, it's like you have to continue to choose that day after day and month after month and maybe even year after year. There's not some magical moment where you say, I forgive that person and this fairy descends from heaven and, and touches you on the shoulders and says you'll never struggle with it again. It's a battle, but it's a battle that Christ gives us grace for because his church is to be one And a church that is unified has to forgive. There's a lot more to say there, certainly. But what have we seen over the last three weeks? In summary, we've seen that our identity has been completely and irreversibly changed. You who once were disqualified from heaven now are miraculously qualified. You who had no share in eternal life now have become an heir with an eternal inheritance laid up for you, reserved in heaven, unfading and undefiled. 
You who once were tainted by sin now are holy saints. You who once walked in darkness have seen a great light. You who once lived and moved under the bondage of sin are rescued and set free. You who once were citizens of Satan's kingdom, bound for an eternity in hell, are now citizens of Christ's kingdom with an inheritance to boot. You who once were enslaved to sin now are redeemed. Your chains are gone. Your heart is free. You who once were guilty are now forgiven, pardoned once for all at the cross. That's who you are. And praise God, he gives us grace to live out our identity with him day after day, week after week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Our hearts are so full of of your grace and your kindness that, that in moments like these, we just wonder how do we not live for you? And then we go out into the world and it's hard and we have cares and struggles. And in your grace, Jesus came not as a harsh, exacting master, but a savior who said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. What, what an identity that we have in Jesus. What a burden that we don't have to bear any longer. Give us grace, we pray, not to, to try to grit our teeth and live better, but to, to recognize who we are, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and to love you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoy this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.